And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. On today's episode, we've got six American soccer-centric questions to ponder. Here with me to do so are two friends. Up first, Malik Toman's new bodyguard and social media enforcer, it's Graham Ruthven. Graham, how goes defending him from the, I'm assuming, hordes of Partick Thistle supporters at the Ibrox Gates? See, the thing is, Partick Thistle have this reputation in Scottish football. All their fans are are derided and mocked for being, like, poets. They're from, like, the West End of, of, of Glasgow, where, like, the houses are slightly more expensive. And uh, so I would maybe fancy my chances of being Mallet Tillman's bodyguard against Partick Thistle fans. But if he ever does anything in, in an old farm derby, maybe that's where the limits of my bodyguard uh, ability are. Uh, dibs on the new football club name West End Poets uh, I'm, I'm keeping that one that's mine now uh, joining us a man who knows that the next great name in American goal scoring is Taha Habruni uh, Joe Taha cannot be denied at the U17 championships should we just give him the number nine shirt now Oh, Taha Abruni. What, what I mean, I am I can honestly say I have no clue who that is. I'm glad you threw in the U17 tie. I've been keeping sort of my peripheral yeah. vision on the U17 World Cup qualifying, but I'm not in deep enough to have heard of Taha, which is a massive mistake. That is an unreal top-tier name. It's yeah. almost as good as shoot. I've been working on a piece with Jeff Reuter for The Athletic uh, about Weston McKenney and Somerville at Leeds United. What is Somerville's first Crescen- name? Is some- like Crescendo Somerville or something. It's, yeah. it's an incredible name. Yes, yes. Yeah. That, yeah, there it is. That is a top-tier name. Taha is a top-tier name. Also, how Scottish can it be to have someone go, ooh, you guys kind of like some form of art? We're going to mock you for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. Uh, yeah, welcome yeah, to Scotland, Joe. feel appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Glasgow specifically. <laughs> Uh, we, I just wanted to mention that, uh, not the Glasgow specifically, the U-17s uh, got the win last night, 3-1 over Trinidad and Tobago, so they're top of their group in U-17 CONCACAF Championship group stage play. Much more still to come on that tournament uh, later on, but for today, we have six questions. First, though, Graham, we should talk about the latest Jesse Marsh news, news that I did not see coming, but no. he might very quickly have another gig in the Premier League, it seems. Indeed. So if reporting is to be, to be believed and it's The Athletic that's reporting it, so it seems like it's pretty legit and I think there are more than one, there's more than one report at this stage, Jesse Marsh is set to be the new manager of Southampton and that will be confirmed or is expected to be confirmed either today or tomorrow. Essentially, Southampton wanted to make an appointment before, I believe they've got a game this weekend against Chelsea. They wanted to manage a new manager in place. It kind of feels like they just had a geolocator on the last Premier League manager and whether he was still in the country. And so Jesse Marsh was still hanging around in the UK and they went, OK, we'll just get him. And um, yes, I share your surprise, Taylor, that Jesse Marsh is, is back in the Premier League. I personally thought he had 
blown his shot of another Premier League job, at least in the immediate term. I thought he would have to come back around to prove himself somewhere else, whether that's in Austria or Germany or the US men's national team job. But it very much sounds like Southampton are long-term fans of Marsh, going back to his his days at Salzburg. They've obviously signed some players from Salzburg, I believe, Southampton. They've done a bit of scouting on him. He was on a managerial shortlist at some point in the past. And so they've decided to discard the evidence right in front of their eyes of his last two jobs and essentially just pretend that they're hiring Red Bull Salzburg's Jesse Marsh and he will be in place at some point this week. I mean, technically, they are hiring Red Bull Salzburg's Jesse Marsh. There's just also been some clubs in between the, those two things. Uh, that connection, though, does make me feel better because it did absolutely feel like they just needed somebody in really quickly and they went for the most available one, especially when you see that they also had some connections to Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard. But it does sound like they will go with, with Jesse Marsh. Joe, do you have reasons for optimism for this one or are you sort of undecided the way Graham and I seem to be? Uh, I'm not really undecided. I think the the narrative here is pretty clear, right? And I, th- I think we would all agree with this. We talked a little bit about this before we started recording. This is a massive risk for Jesse Marsh, right? Losing two jobs. Maybe there's a relegation clause in there so that you know he has some some backdoor. I don't know what this looks like, but essentially the risk of losing two jobs inside of what, four months in England is something that we've never seen from an American coach before, something that we rarely see from uh, managers, period. So <laughs> I think this is, this is a massive for risk Jesse for Jesse Marsh, Marsh, one that probably does not turn out well. According to 538, they have a 77% chance, Southampton, of getting relegated. That is very, very high. I'm not optimistic that Jesse Marsh is going to be able to turn this around, but the reason why you take this job is because of the slim chance, right? Just just as there's risk here, there is also reward. There is a chance that Jesse Marsh does do this and he makes some sort of history here. And we talk about this for a long, long time. I don't think that's likely to happen, but I think there is a chance that it happens. And if you're Jesse Marsh, that's the only, I guess, other than money, that's really the only logical reason why you would ever take this job because it is going to be an uphill battle. So with that in mind, Graham, if we're agreeing that it's an uphill battle, which I definitely am, uh, would we assume then that there is language in place like this isn't a contract just to keep them up, right? I'm I'm assuming that if he's agreeing to this, there is some long-term planning behind it. There is a, if we go to the championship, we'll still give you this grace period. And if it looks like things are on the up and up, then we will stick with you. You, you would hope so, and that's where my mind went to when you consider, as Joe says, the risk of, of, of this job. I When you look at the squad that Southampton have, I don't think Leeds United's squad was particularly strong. I think Southampton's is, is weaker. They've got a couple of big-name players in there that he can build around. I really like Salasu. I've always liked him. I think he, there's, there's a lot of potential in him. Ward-Prowse, obviously, we all know how good he can be. Up front, I think Jesse Marsh is going to run into a similar problem he had at Leeds United. I don't see a, a, a striker that's going to score 10 goals between now and the end of the season. I'm a big fan of Che Adams, but he's he links play. He's not a, a, a goal scorer. He's not a finisher. So I think he's going to have some of the same issues that he has, has at Leeds. And you're right, Taylor. You would hope that there would be some form of commitment that Jesse Marsh would rebuild in the championship next season. From my point of view, that's slightly disappointing for someone who wants to see Jesse Marsh succeed at the highest level. I, I would like to see an American succeed in the top league. I personally think he could have got a job in the Bundesliga or maybe even go back to Austria on one of the big teams in Austria, maybe go back to Salzburg. He's in the Champions League there in European competition. So for him to be in the second tier of English football feels uh, kind of a little bit below him. I know his last two jobs haven't really gone gone to plan, but nonetheless, I'd like to see him at a higher level. And uh, attached to that, 
I have no idea what this means for US soccer because it feels like their life has just been made a little bit harder by Marsh disappearing off the market again, I think I said, after you sat with by Leeds, which was a week ago, let's keep in mind, a lot has changed for Jesse Marsh in the oh space my. of a week. A week ago, I said, that's that's done. That's who's, you know, whether you like it or not, I can accept points on both sides. That's who the next US men's national team head coach is going to be. And now, now that doesn't look likely. Um, having said that, if this if this job doesn't go well for Marsh and he, there isn't that commitment he's going to rebuild in the championship next season, he could be on the market again this summer. And then is that one failure too many for him to be a candidate for the US men's national team job? As someone... Even for someone like me who has, I've, I like the idea of Marsh as, the, as as US head coach. Even for me, that would be difficult. That would be three failures in a very short space of time, and so maybe that changes the dynamic of him being a potential next head coach. Because even if it, even if he did still fit, or even if US Soccer felt like he was the right guy, it, the do, the jokes do just sort of write themselves about like anytime you can hire a guy who's been fired from his last three clubs, you gotta do it. That's the that's the hiring you want, Joe. Uh, I really appreciated your ensign Sulu, ca- uh, Captain Sulu. Excuse me, he was an ensign now. He's the Captain Sulu. Uh, oh my, sort of moment. What what was it about that <laughs> timeline that upset you so much? It just feels like there's been so many things that's happened since then. Like yeah. things are things are so bitty. There, apparently, there's Champions League soccer today. I yeah. There's there's too much going on. It feels like it's been an eternity since that whole Leeds thing happened. I will say, like I am in some ways thrilled for U.S. Soccer that Jesse Marsh is getting this job because I'm of the camp that's on the other side of the the battle from where Graham is about Jesse Marsh and, and the U.S. Men's National Team. Even though I I really enjoy a lot of what Jesse Marsh does, I I. I've already been public about saying I don't think I'd go that direction in that style for this job. So, you know, in some ways I am I'm grateful that he's taking this job with Southampton because maybe that does open up other options for U.S. Yeah. soccer or make it easier for them to go other places. That is a very good point. All right. So we will see what happens there. Does sort of feel harsh that he gets Chelsea, although it's been an, a not really informed Chelsea. So who knows what will happen in that game? Leeds, it will be so fascinating. Just to mention, Southampton have Leeds on the twenty fifth yep. of February, <laughs> and that match, I want to watch that match. I don't know if it's on UK TV, but I'll, I'll be finding a VPN and I'll be finding a way to watch that game because that one already feels uh, tantalizing. Yep, I saw a bunch of the comments about in that athletic piece where Leeds fans saying, "I swear, if he gets a result against us, I'm going <laughs> dot dot dot," and that will be. Terrific. So we will see Jesse what happens Marsh, there. Jesse Marsh versus Chris Armas. Huh? Huh? Oh, huh? oh God. Huh? That, that, that physically hurt me a little bit. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yes. That is not how Leeds fans saw this one going. Oh, boy. But we, that hasn't yet been made official. It does seem like it will be pretty soon. Congratulations to Jesse Marsh for another gig. Congratulations to Southampton for easily staying up this season we know that will happen joe coming to you for this one from paula montalvo i want to start following uh, nwsl but there's no team in my city exclamation point how do you recommend picking an nwsl team to support in 2023 i will jump in just to say paula and anyone else considering this there's no rush take your time you watch some games is my answer. Like really, I think sometimes people feel like they have to have a team right away because otherwise you're being fair weather or you're just sort of floating from team to team. Uh, I think Chuck Klosterman, the writer, was once dubbed uh, a sports anarchist because he just sort of jumped around or a sports atheist because he jumps around and doesn't believe in any one club. And I think it's good to do that for a little while until you find the club that does resonate. So that would be my answer. Take your time. Watch a bunch of games. Joe, how say you? 
yeah, do that if you want to be a bandwagon fan. Come yeah, on now. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, there is. I think there is some wisdom to that. I uh, I definitely do feel that pressure in myself. Growing up, I uh, I tried to ditch all my Arizona sports teams at different times, especially uh, the Arizona Cardinals. And so I tried to become a New York Giants fan for a while. I tried all to become the an Arizona Eagles fan for a teams? while. What's that? Oh, I guess you have the Coyotes now, don't you? Too hockey in Arizona. Kind of yeah, get, get excited. We've got every sport. We got we got all the sports. Yeah, we got all of them. Um, but I, I tried to ditch the Cardinals, and it just felt wrong. It felt dirty. I couldn't do it. So I actually am of the group that says like you kind of got to pick a team and stick to it, even if it sucks and even if you hate it. So maybe I'm not the best person to be giving advice for this question, but I do have a, a few different possible routes for you. So the first option is. What city are you closest to? Maybe there's an easy way to do this. There's 12 NWSL teams. I don't know where you live, Paola, but you know Google Maps can tell you more than I can on this one. So maybe find the closest team to where you are. Maybe you find your favorite U.S. Women's National Team player if you watch the U.S. Women's National Team and you pick the team that they, for, they, that they play for. So maybe you love Naomi Gurma like I do, and so that might get you to San Diego. You might love Alex Morgan. That might also get you to San Diego. I mean, you can go around here with, with the U.S. Women's National Team player pool. That's one way to go. You could pick a good team if you really just want to do full bandwagon, although parity in the NWSL is pretty parody-y. So... You know, may there's no guarantee guarantee that the team you pick is actually going to be good. But OL Reign won the Shield last year. They were the best regular season team according to the table, and Portland Thorns won the trophy at the end of the year after the playoffs. So you know, there's a couple of different options there. You could pick a fun newcomer, which takes me all the way back to San Diego. You could go Angel City and hope that they have a, a better second year too. But San Diego was by far the more fun team last year. Or you could just pick the worst team so that no one can possibly <laughs> accuse you of being a bandwagon fan. Yep. Graham is nodding along very aggressively. This could be Gotham's time to shine. You could become a new Gotham fan. They, they just traded for Lynn Williams over the offseason. So there is a piece to build around. They have other talent as well. No team is ever really fully down and out in the NWSL, which is one thing that, that makes it fun and chaotic. Those are a few of the things. There's all sorts of different routes you could go. Those are a few of my suggestions, I guess. Uh, Graham, I would love to hear your answers as well. I will acknowledge I did forget that the Arizona Diamondbacks exist. I forget that you all have a baseball team, Joe. That said, you all have made the playoffs, I think, once in the last 20 hey, years. Hey now. So hey now. maybe you all forgot that, about no, yourselves wait. as well. Oh, wow. 10 years, Actually, 10 that, years, I think. That, yeah, okay. that feels a little bit more right. <laughs> wait, I saw yeah. the Phoenix Suns in the news recently. What did yeah, they, they do, Joe? They traded it for Kevin Durant, which is like the it's the oh, win now yeah. move. Like it's it's LAFC getting a Bamiyang on loan from Chelsea and having a Bamiyang. Having Chelsea pay all of his, his salary, it's, it's not a really perfect comparison, but it, that, that's like the, we're going to win a title this year down with the Denver, down with the Denver right. Nuggets and the Eastern Conference. Mayan 8 signing Cristiano Ronaldo, not worked out well. So Let's, yeah, go, with Van 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 Let's go Robin Van Persie in that it's, way. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I feel like Kevin Durant is more uh, Neymar, maybe, in, in global soccer right now than, than he is Ronaldo, certainly. I don't know. I'm not sure what the perfect comparison is there. <laughs> I but, don't know if... If KD fans are going to love that one. Uh, and Joe. Basketball chat. This is a, all I've got. A child of the 90s, Joe. I'm fully aware the Phoenix Suns exist because Charles Barkley, my friend. Good. Charles Barkley right. uh, and then Steve Nash for a little while. That, that's what I got for you when it comes to the hey, Suns. That's good. That's Graham, good. Taylor. What do you have when it comes to NWSL fandom? Well, I am a, a big fan of Charles Barkley and his song Crazy. That was big about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, 
I'm just kidding. I know who Charles Barkley is. Anyway, NWSL chat. Yeah, so th- three criteria. Uh, one, they have to have good stadium food. Two, they need good kits. And three, which Joel referenced, they can't be successful. In fact, the more tragic the team on the pitch, the more likely I am to gravitate towards them. So is that maybe Gotham FC, given that they, as Joe mentioned, they finished bottom of the NWSL last season. I've also seen some decent kits from them. They also do good social videos where when they turn up at, they play at Red Bull Arena, right? Gotham FC, I, I, I think. They turn up at the, at the stadium for the games and they do like almost like a kind of um, like a catwalk sort of thing. Yes. I, I do enjoy that. that Because um, like Aaron West... Is uh, his 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 wife is like sporting director there, isn't isn't, isn't she? Um, so I've seen through Aaron's socials, I think that they do the catwalk for for home games. So maybe some good social content will pull pull you towards a team. Um, the NWSL is actually excellent for kits. So there's there's always so much creativity in that in that league. And I've got a couple of uh, Portland Thorns jerseys. Portland Thorns, the only team I've actually NWSL team I've I've been to see live. Um, so maybe that would be a reason for me to root for them a little bit. But I also think there's a Chicago Red Stars shirt somewhere in my house. I went looking for it earlier today and couldn't find it. It might, it might be in my, my parents' house. But it has. I'm pretty sure the one I've got has like a map of Chicago or something on it, um, which was was pretty cool. But yeah, in all seriousness, I, I think um, we've spoken about how to pick a team previously before, and, and I think it's about finding some sort of connection with the identity of that club. So it could be something political, it could be a style of play, it could be the fact that they're successful. Um, at basically, the TLDR is find something that keeps you engaged in, in that club and then just go from there. And as always, I would say, find the thing that keeps you engaged, provided it's not one specific player. Because if you love that team because of that one player, and then that one player departs, now you've got a conundrum. Uh, I, I also really love the idea. I'm going to say Gotham as well now. Because like jumping onto like the bandwagon of a team that is already good and then them having a bad season it's hard for it's hard uh the sports like superstition in me is hard not to take that personally and be like i did this i ruined the momentum of this team whereas you jump in with a bad team or a team who struggled historically like they can only go up or you could just get to like commiserate and then eventually they get better and then you're part of that uh that growth but looking at the roster for Gotham as well there's Plenty of talent there. So I would assume that they will be at least somewhat better than they have been in seasons past. Uh, so that, that, that is my answer as well, Joe Graham. Uh, I, I echo your sentiments there. Anything else on this question? No, other than just I'm excited for the NWSL season to start. Challenge Cup's going to be middle of the season this year. I believe taking place sort of like during and around the World Cup. So it's not going to be this weird preseason tournament. It's going to be in the middle of the year. I don't know how that's going to work exactly with other much bigger and more important games going on, but I think it's a step to not have it be this basically meaningless preseason thing. So I, I like that. I'm excited for the season. I'm excited for expansion that's coming in, in the near future to add some more teams and, and some more markets into the league. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to some of this stuff. All right. Uh, as am I, I'm looking forward to this break because then after the break, we'll get back with many more Lister questions back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show and our American-centric listener question episode. We've got another good one. It's a head-scratcher from Richard Rolson. When he was hired, my impression was Vlatko Antonovsky was very good at game management and tactics to get the most out of his players. His time with Rain FC seemed to suggest he would make an excellent head coach for the U.S. Women's National Team. However, it now seems like he is not getting the best out of his players and that his tactics are rather rudimentary. Do you agree that Vlatko hasn't had the same coaching success as he had in NWS? USL, and if so, why do you think this is happening? Joe, how say you? Okay, so I I want to lay some of the background here for Vlaco in the NWSL before I, I give my answer and maybe hit back at, at the premise of this question just a little bit. So before Vlaco takes over the U.S. national team, he takes over in 2019. So he's he's coaching the OL Reign in the NWSL. He finishes third in the league in 2018 with OL Reign. He finishes fourth in the league in 2019 with OL Reign. He did win a couple of NWSL championships almost a decade ago now with Kansas City. So that was 2014-2015 after finishing second and third in the league in those seasons. Went on to to win the, the, win the playoffs. So there is success there. My theory about Blackco is that I'm not really sure he was like this perennial winner and giant in the NWSL, at least not in the last several years of his career in that league. So I, I think in some ways, I disagree with the premise of Richard's question. He had success, but I mean, how many times has the NWSL iterated and changed and evolved and, and to the point where really it looks not entirely different, not in, not in ways that I think a lot of us wish it would look different, but you know, the product on the field has changed and the, the league has changed since 2015, which is the moment that Vlaka won his, his most recent NWSL championship, I, I think in some ways his success in the NWSL has translated to the national team in that he's had mixed success. There has been success. Like, don't get me wrong. This U.S. team is fantastic. They do a lot of things very, very well. They are incredibly talented. By all accounts, when Vlaco was hired, the players had had some input in that, and they seemed to really like Vlaco then, and they still seem to really like Vlaco now. For basically, from, from what I can tell from being around the team peripherally on, on press conferences and things like that, People seem to enjoy playing under him, and I, I really don't think I've ever heard a player say something bad about him, which is helpful, and I, th- I think especially important given the climate of women's soccer. But if we're talking about the standard on the field, I, I'm not sure I have a lot of belief in the coaching quality in the NWSL or in the process that got him the U.S. job in the first place. Like We talked about Kate Margraf, Taylor, you and I, Last week, and I basically said, you know, the biggest decision she's made is to hire Vlatko, which I think when you look at the the on-field success that the U.S. has had in meaningful competitions, granted the Olympics is pretty much the only one of those that there's been, it was a, a big old failure. So I'm not I'm not really sure that Vlatko with the U.S. has been that different from Vlatko in the NWSL. I guess the titles haven't been there, but those came so long ago that I'm not really sure how we're supposed to think about those anyway. Uh, it, it's not a Richard. It's not a perfect answer to your question, and I, I certainly lack some of the context around NWSL games from a decade ago that I I wasn't watching. But from what I've read and from what I have watched and, and what we're all living now, I'm not sure that there is this massive divide from the Vlaco that U.S. Soccer hired and the Vlaco that we're seeing coach the U.S. now. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, and I, I think a lot of it has to do with our – I'll speak for myself – my assumptions about the U.S. women's national team and then my assumptions about what he would bring. Because I remember when he was appointed thinking, yep, it's a no-brainer. This is a perfect hire. The only person I thought should maybe also be in contention or should have been in more contention was Laura Harvey. And then she goes on to be an assistant with Vlatko with the U.S. Uh, now she's with O.L. Reign, I believe. The other name that I think a lot of people linked to the gig back then was Paul Riley. We know now why that was never going to happen, and that is a very good thing. Um, so I think with Vlatko, though, there was this idea, as you said, Joe, like to my understanding, that no former players have said anything bad about him. Uh, Yael uh, Averbush, uh, uh, the now GM of Gotham, her second reference of this episode. I remember her talking about like how good of a coach he was and even Aaron West talking about like going to training sessions and seeing how good of a communicator he was and how positive a figure he was. And I think if we pause there for a moment, it's worth remembering that Jill Ellis, the former uh, women's national team coach, wins those two World Cups, but by all accounts, it is not a positive locker room. It's a pretty toxic place. Uh, Megan Rapino sort of slams Jill Ellis in her books. And a lot of it seemed to relate to the idea that she wasn't a good communicator. She didn't create a team. She sort of played people off of each other, didn't really inform people what was happening and why it was happening. And people kind of felt, I think, left out or confused. And it wasn't maybe the harmonious locker room that people would have liked. And so in my mind, I think that's where Vlatko felt like uh, if you bring any sort of tactical acumen and then also a, you're a good communicator and a positive force in the locker room, you will just propel the national team to the next level because they're the U.S. women's national team. Um, and that was the knock against Jill Ellis. It was sort of like, yeah, she's OK with tactics. She's OK with personnel. And so but she's doing a great job of sort of managing this team that seemed to be. The narrative, I would say unfairly uh, on her, but it felt like Vlatko coming in was just going to be a slam dunk of a little more positivity in the locker room, a little bit more tactical clarity, and they're going to win everything. And it turns out managing the U.S. is a lot more challenging than FIFA would have me believe, because if you're playing FIFA, you can just put in the best 11, like the most highly rated players, and you don't have to worry about all of the other things that managers have to worry about when it comes to the U.S. women's national team, because you have so many players who are now icons or iconic or household names who are maybe not players that need to be involved in the team anymore. And it's a rare situation in my mind with the U.S. women's national team to have the older generations still playing and all of them still sort of legendary, iconic players, but then also youngsters coming through who also have a ton of name brand and name recognition behind them. Sophia Smith breaking through, Tr Trinity Rodman, uh, like uh, Ashley Sanchez would be one. Mallory Swanson would be one. Mallory Swanson, I think, kind of bridges that divide a little bit. But I think it's a really difficult task right now. I'm not like uh, treading any new ground by saying that sort of that transition from the old guard to the new guard and how you make that happen is a really difficult task and a thing that I think a lot of people have struggled with, Flatco among them. But I, I do think, in my mind, it was just improve a little bit, improve the locker room a little bit, and you will win everything. And it turns out there's a lot more to it. Yeah. When I went through all the all the players that Vlatko has given a first cap to since his, his appointment, the number I came up with was was seventeen different players, and and a lot of those wow. seventeen have have been in the last couple years. And I think that just illustrates the the task that you're referencing there, that you're outlining there, Taylor, of of essentially building a new a new team. And I'd be lying if I said I had any sort of familiarity with Vlatko's time in NWSL just because of the lack of coverage over here of that league. And also it was a little while ago as well. But I have 
watched the US WNT quite closely, particularly in, in kind of the last six to nine months. And I do have some sympathy for Vlatko in, in, in that it's a difficult task that he's got and combine that that turnover that he's got and that challenge of building a new team with the age-old international management issue of, you know, not having a great deal of time on, on the training pitch with those players. And, and maybe that goes some way to explaining why um, Flacco's tactics at club level have, have maybe been different for the US WNT. I'm not saying necessarily that that's, that's, that's true. Joe, you kind of disagree with the premise of that question. I'm just saying if that is, if that is accurate, then maybe that is a bit of an explanation as to why. All right. Well, I think we've gone uh, fairly deep on that one, or as deep as any of us feels comfortable going into, but we have some more uh, USWNT questions to come. For now, Graham, a question I want to come to you for, uh, because it, it's going to be interesting, I think. I, I feel like my answer is going to make your head explode. From Zach Lippert, oh, wow. if okay. you could take one aspect of American sports, tailgating, drafts, playoffs, whatever you want, go crazy, and add it to soccer in Europe, what would it be? Also do the opposite and take one European sports thing and make the US do it. Okay, so the American sporting game day experience is just so far ahead of what we typically have in the UK and and Europe. So I'd like to see us borrow some ideas in that respect. And there is a balance to be struck here. If they started having cheerleaders at Sterling Albion games, for example, that, that would be... A little bit uh, jarring. I'm not yeah. sure I'd be on board with that. But when I did my walking tour of Ibrox for the, the Patreon, the TSS Plus Patreon a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how they had a, a, a new fan zone they've just built at Ibrox. And essentially, it is a big bar. They open up on match day and they have live music and interviews with former players on the stage. And I think it's great. And there will be listeners here of MLS clubs and, and, and fans of American sporting teams that think that doesn't sound very revolutionary. And I agree. It shouldn't be very revolutionary. But in Scottish soccer and in, in British soccer, European soccer, that isn't particularly common to have that sort of thing. And I think we could certainly do much more of that in, in European football. And then one other thing very quickly that I would like to borrow from American sports is I would like there to be more parity in the European League. So that's something that I would take from the American sports. But at the same time, I don't want trades and weird transfer rules because I actually think transfers <laughs> are such a key part of the discourse that Allocation MLS misses order. out. Allocation <laughs> order. Allocation no, no, order. No, 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 no. I'm not taking allocation <laughs> order at all. Um, but so let me take the draft, right? So the draft is a concept I think yes. could work, not in terms of transfers, right? But in terms of loans. And so I'm going to look at this purely. I'm going to put my Sterling Albion hat on here. I'm going to look at it purely from a lower league point of view, being a Sterling Albion fan, of course. And loans are just so crucial to to, to us in the lower leagues. And just today, Albion have signed a very exciting young player from Hibs on loan. The SBFL took pity on us and allowed us an emergency loan after Dundee United pulled that that trick with Kai Fotheringham. So we got a player in today, but the loan system is really, really messy and there's no structure to it. So how about in the summer and January, all the big clubs place all the players they're willing to loan out into a draft system. We gather all the lower league teams at Hamden Park and we have uh, you know a draft a draft event like they have in, in American sports and all the all the lone players join their clubs for the season I think that would be great and so it's not a pure draft in in, in the purest sense but I would like a, an an altered an alteration on, on on the draft for European soccer Graham yours is good the problem is you didn't go far enough I have gone okay. far enough on my no yours <laughs> you actually do really like yours and mine will never ever ever happen so I went a little bit more pie in the sky here, but if we could do something like this... Is it a floating stadium? The content would be great. No, all the teams have to play in floating stadiums in, in this reality, both on, on both sides of the Atlantic. But I want to do 
a big old European soccer draft. I want to pause the big five leagues next season. And before the season starts, maybe sometime in July, we put all the big five league players into a big pot. And basically, we just do a fantasy football style snake draft. And we're going to get really weird teams. The thing is, we're also going to get like almost balanced teams. I don't think they're actually going to be balanced because if you have an early pick and can snag one of the best players in the world, I think that is an outsized advantage compared to being able to snag you know, a couple of players at the end of the first round and the beginning of the second round. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, I do think that would help a lot to have an early pick. But I, I don't care if it takes days. I don't care if it takes weeks. I want to see this happen. I think it would be incredible. I think there'd be a lot of content, new storylines. This is, guys, this is how you fix European soccer's imbalance. You know, Graham, I guess, was was on the right track with the loan draft. And in fact, his track is probably much better than mine. But I do think this would be fun, even though it will never, ever happen. I like the idea of somehow integrating a draft. And just, Graham, I think you you hit on it there, right? Other mechanisms of parity. We've talked about maybe playoffs, and I, I do think that would be fun, even though you're likely seeing the same teams compete in the playoffs at the end of the single, at the end of every year, because I think if any European league is going to start it that doesn't already have it at the top level, at the top of the top level, it's probably going to be with four or six teams, and those teams are most likely going to be the same ones over and over again. But, you know, maybe it's maybe it's playoffs, maybe it's not, maybe it's some sort of increased financial restriction. I have a hard time imagining that happening in many places. It's a difficult nut to crack, and I, this this obviously doesn't crack it, but I think that'd be fun. On the, on the flip side, the uh, the American side, I'm, it's pro-rel. The answer, I think, is just pro-rel to American soccer. Everyone can agree that it would be fun. Everyone can agree that it would be a lot, a lot of fun. The problem is I, I don't think the soccer landscape would be this far along. It's not very far along at all, but I don't think it would be this far even if the U.S. had had pro-rel from the start, like back in the 90s, or, or even you can you can go back further. I don't know that it could have survived some of the financial difficulties there, and I don't know that the structure even existed or the interest was there to have enough teams so that you could move between leagues. I think there's all sorts of reasons why we don't have this in American soccer today, but, I mean, it would be it would be a blast. And it, it, the lack of pro-rel does limit American soccer ceiling, I think. You know, maybe the landscape changes so much in 50 years that – it basically looks the same everywhere, and it really is just the league that spends the most money. But that is, for me, that's 100% the answer, and I think it's always going to be. If if we were going to take Pro-Rel and apply it to an American sport that wasn't soccer, Joe, do you have thoughts on which sport, which professional sport would be the best one to incorporate it? My assumption is uh, the NBA or basketball. Uh, the, the NBA would be good. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you'd have to expand a little bit, or do you just split it 15 and 15 and, and go, I, I, I actually could work quite well. I think that would be a lot of That's fun. That's just complete complete ignorance, but what's what's below the NBA? Like what? Because obviously in U.S. soccer, there's sure. not the there's there there is the pyramid and there's not mobility, but you still have you know USL championship. You still have the old end yeah. ASL. What what's the second tier of American basketball? Is not just college basketball? So it's it's called a bit weird. If- the the development like the NBA's feeder league, it's not really that, but the development league is called the G League. It used to be called the D League, and then Gatorade sponsored it, so now it's called the G League, uh, hey. which is which is actually kind of right out of soccer's handbook. Capitalism. So I think I think there is some. Something to be said for that. I think Europe did that one first by a mile. But uh, yeah, that I don't think you could have pro-rel between the G League and the NBA, but if you split the NBA in half, you could have some fun. I mean, yeah, but I think when I think of pro-rel, I think of like the idea that soccer is a thing where you get a, a bunch of people together playing together and then eventually you work your way up the table. Basketball seems like the one where you could most easily replicate that in terms of it doesn't require 
theoretically, it doesn't require a ton of money to put together a basketball team. Obviously, mm. it does with with all the money that goes into developing players. But I mean, from sure. like an equipment facilities standpoint, it feels like one that could be done more readily. Like I think you could have a pro team in Richmond next week if you needed to. So in that way, I think it, it lends itself to that. But yes, Joe, I share your thoughts that ProRel uh, would be the one to bring over. Yes, Graham, you have thoughts? Can Can I ask questions about tailgating, please? Because I, I, I have <laughs> I have done tailgating, yeah. right? So I, I, I tailgated before. I was very coincidentally, I was at Orlando City and NYCFC's first ever MLS game. They played each other at, on the first game of the, of the season. And so I was on holiday in Orlando with some of my friends and we had a big, like, uh, big suburban for the, for the two weeks. And so we, we had tickets to the game. We tailgated for that game, right? But I, I was the designated driver. And that is my question about Mistake. tailgating because... because <laughs> Surely you just end up with a load of drunk drivers. I don't want to be the co- a cop about this, but is there not a, like a public safety issue there? Like that just wouldn't happen. The, the cops in Scotland would never go for that. I can tell you that. <laughs> I mean, I think that is the advantage of football lasting anywhere between three and a half and seven hours is that you, you sort of do. I think they, they cut off sales at a certain point. So theoretically, you sober up a little bit. But yeah, I think there is an element of you're going to have to have some some self-policing in place, and it doesn't seem mm. like that's going to go well, especially in Scotland, where it seems like maybe after a few drinks and fans intermixing, you're going to get some violence pretty yeah. quickly. So tailgating, in, in theory, would be great in, in Scotland, not for the reasons you've just mentioned, although maybe partly, um, but the, because some away days, like, for instance, Stennis Muir... As a as a as a one of our local dar- derbies, and I can go there on the train, and there's some pubs around the stadium, and I can go for a drink, watch the game, and then get the train get the train home. But there are some away days, like when I went to East Fife, where that stadium is in the middle of nowhere. There is there's no train station, there's no bars, there's nothing, and so it's a bit, it's not the best away day where you're just driving, parking, and going to the game, and then driving back again. So I would like to add a tailgate element, but then after the game is finished, the realization of wait. I've got to drive home now, and I've had 10 beers and 100 chicken wings. Maybe that wouldn't yeah. work so well. The chicken wings absorb the alcohol. You're fine, Graham. You're fine. Oh, uh, also, sure. uh, just so Stenis. you all know, captaining my new club, uh, West End Poets FC, is uh, Mr. Stennis Muir. Uh, that is officially uh, the captain of my club. Also, I guess, a location, Graham? It has a location, okay. yeah. There used to be a big toffee factory in Stennis Muir. It's, it's a weird place. Uh, well, Graham, would you be happy to know that the thing that I am gifting to Europe is uh, playoffs? Because I know it destroys traditions <laughs> and would make everybody mad, but I think we can all agree that playoffs are the best. Uh, I, I really, Joe loves playoffs. He thinks the Supporter Shield is overrated. He knows that MLS Cup is the thing that matters. But yeah, really, like, the Champions, League, <laughs> the Champions League is ultimately playoffs that just last over two seasons. It's just you qualify for the playoffs one year the next year you're in the playoffs and then you <laughs> play true. the entire never season about to, like to win the championship like in that way and it is the the biggest club game i think on the planet so uh, in that way i feel like there's already sort of a love for playoffs there and i think a lot of this has to do with my feeling that like around match week 22 is when i'm sort of like what are we doing what are we doing do we really need this to be 38 weeks long and i start to get a little bit tired of the structure so maybe it's just my boredom that wants us to have playoffs uh going the other way 
Uh, I would love for you, or no, uh, yeah, going the other way, I would love for the United States to import the luxury tax. Uh, Or no, no, excuse me, I would love Europe to have the luxury tax, keeping it that way. Uh, I think that would be a great way to balance out the giant spending of some clubs is to have them have to pay that extra tax that goes down to the clubs that aren't able to spend as much. Theoretically balancing it, but at the very least, theoretically punishing those clubs uh, for overspending, especially if that spending doesn't work. Uh, So those are some things I would like to see involved. Graham, you're down for the playoffs in Europe, yeah? I, I love playoffs, just not to decide who wins league titles. And I think I think that, oh, Graham that loves sentiment the shield too. would be... Graham, you and I both love the Shield. That's amazing. <laughs> I do love the Shield, but I, I think MLS Cup is more prestigious Graham, for can... reasons that I can't fully uh, articulate just because MLS told me to feel that be, way. Be the I'm, change I'm, you want to see in the world, Graham. I'm, I'm, I'm a change, change you want to see puppet, in the world. Essentially. So. It, it fully, like, I can see you both talking but Graham, the way you said "I love the shield" sounded like Joe had a gun to your head. <laughs> I, I, love I love it. It is my favorite thing. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, I, I am going to ramble less with this question. I'm excited to hear you all ramble more on this one. From Jesse Wooten, uh, Joe, coming to you for this one first. We keep saying our starting 11 is set, uh, but that is assuming no players change in status, ability, performance, or injury, and we keep the 4-3-3 base formation static throughout competitions. So this is about the U.S. men's national team. What players, for example, Malik Tillman or Luca De La Torre, could impact the way the USA plays in 2026? Joe, do you want to take any issues with, with the premise of this question, or do you want to dive right into it? Uh, do you have issues with the premise here? I, the only thing I'll, I'll say is I'm not sure there's any U.S. players that we haven't seen already play for the U.S. that are good enough to change how the team plays like stylistically. There's a, there's a lot of individual things, maybe at a micro level, that could shift. If you have player you X versus player sorry, Y, do you, do you, yeah, go ahead, Graham. Do you think that'll? Do you think that'll stay the same until 2026? Are you saying that will be the case at, at the next World Cup, or are you just saying that as it is right now? I, I, both, I guess. I, I don't know that the player pool is going to change dramatically from now to then. I think the the fringes will change, right? And the biggest thing that I'm sort of one of the two biggest things that I'm tracking with the U.S. is how the core is changing, right? Who's who's being added to the group of players? that we saw the 2022 World Cup and we also reasonably expect to be in 2026, right? The midfield, Musa McKinney-Adams, Pulisic, Wea, maybe Aronson, Matt Turner, I mean, Serginho Dest on, on one side, Jedi Robinson on the other. There's 9, 10, 11 maybe players that are, are all sort of in that category. Who joins them? And that, that's almost how I, I tried to answer this question. I, I do want to say, I, I think I just said it, like, I, don't, I don't think maybe other than Gio Reyna, like there was a single player in the U.S. pool, maybe Tyler Adams, that like is is good enough at what they do to warrant the U.S. like doing something specific. I think it's almost always going to be the manager who sets that tone and, and tries to use the players that they have at their disposal. But as far as players that could sort of kind of change things, Valoran Balogun is the first one that came to my mind. Yep. It, it's going to basically, if the U.S. get Balogun, that will end the false nine experiment because Balogun is good enough that he should be starting every single game. And I'm actually getting more and more scared that he is straight up good enough to play for England. Graham, I think you told me not to worry about that because they have a lot of other good players. (laughs) And and he has just been unreal. Like He's having one of the best seasons in Europe right now, period, regardless of nationality, age, position, whatever. He has 15 goals, I think, in Liga for for Reims and has has been unreal. Like this, He's a top scorer. This kid is special. And, And Arsenal know it. And unfortunately, when Arsenal know it, England are, are darn well going to know it too. So I'm, I'm extremely, extremely scared about that situation. But Balogun is one answer. 
And Chris Richards is kind of the only other one I could think of that maybe kind of sort of a little bit changes something. In that, I'm imagining him starting over Tim Ream because Tim Ream is old, even though he's having also an unreal season right now with Fulham. Every week, there's a Twitter highlight of Tim Ream that makes him look like he should have been playing for Man City for the last decade. But... Well, Chris Pep Richards, basically said that. Yeah, yeah, Pep did basically say that. If you were if you were a little bit younger, we would have been making this happen, you and me. Uh, I think Richards is more mobile, obviously, than, than Tim Ream, and so he's maybe not quite as good of a passer. He's not quite as good of a passer, but he's still capable on the ball, and he's got more defensive mobility. So I think that helps the U.S. in the press and, and kind of helps maybe add add one other wrinkle to the team. But that's like a that's a minor shift more than anything else. So I don't know if that really answers Jesse's question. I have other players down that I think could break into the core. That's not really what Jesse seems to be asking. So I guess Balogun is is my main answer to this question. Graham, thoughts from you? Yeah, I agree with Joe that right now there aren't really many players that are good enough to change the way that the team plays. And I don't anticipate that maybe Balogun being an exception. Um, the US have really timed that managerial and leadership transition poorly with following Balogun where there's just nobody to send him a text right now or just keep in with him as he's having a breakout couple of months as Joe says the top scorer in league one at the moment Mikel Arteta is being asked about him um so maybe he is going to get an opportunity for for Arsenal but yeah Balogun has his potential is quite high I I disagree with Joe in that Unless I misinterpreted him, Joe kind of thinks that the group's going to be set until 2026. I, the top I just of the group. The top a, of the group. That's all. Yeah. Okay. I, I still I still would disagree with that in that there's just always players that emerge. There'll be an 18-year-old. There'll be a 19-year-old we've never heard of or barely heard of Ta-ha. right now. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that might change the picture, but... The one player, yeah, Balogun, the other player you mentioned, Joe Reyna, I think, I know he's already quite an important part of the team, but I think it's fair to say he's not been fully integrated yet, and if he's on the right side of the attack, then that's a very different profile of wide player to wear. If he's in the midfield, I think that also changes the profile of that unit in terms of how Reyna uses the ball, and then even if he's in behind a central striker which might be his most natural position, that role didn't really exist under Berhalter. So you're, you're talking about a, a change of shape and maybe a change of approach there as well. And then um, I don't think he's he's good enough to change the the, the, the approach of the team, but when someone, when Jesse puts uh, Malik Tillman in his question, I have to individually address that. So I guess Malik Tillman would change the profile of that US attack in, in the way that he's a, a dribbler. He likes to get on the ball in the way that Wea doesn't to the same extent. I, I still haven't made up my mind on what Tillman's ceiling is as a player. He definitely has improved over the course of the season, particularly in terms of his off-the-ball work ethic, um, particularly in games against Partick Thistle uh, when he's uh, contesting drop balls. But um, yeah, he he was disappointing in the Champions League this season, and so I want to see him at that level again before I can make a, a, a more solid judgment on him. But I do like loads about his game. He's good in the ball. He's genuinely brilliant in the air. That's one of his best qualities. I'm just not ready to say he'll be a key player in, in 2026. Uh, for me, I think, like, looking at the question, I, I if we're going to try to change that base formation for a moment, it would be, if we go to a back five, to me, that means that we have 
three very, very good center backs that you can't keep out. Like the Dutch, for example, I think that's part of why they play three at the back is just because they have so many options there. But the U.S. has good center backs. I don't think enough that it necessitates playing all three of them. Similarly, I don't think we have wing backs that like we have players who can be wing backs, but it's not like we have uh, Robinson and Dest playing every single week in a back five, and yet we're forcing them into a back four. So for me, the back four stays the same. The the really interesting one could be Adams and McKinney playing together at Leeds. That I haven't always sort of loved the idea of putting them in like a four-two-three-one together, but the more they're playing for Leeds, yeah, that's a good the, point. The more sort of they build that like uh, that relationship, such that maybe it becomes a four-two-two-two. Uh, but then the question becomes, who's going to play number nine? And the answer is, I don't know, maybe Balogun. Uh, and that that is the sort of thing is I think whoever sort of develops as your number nines, that will be sort of a big factor in how we we play in the future and how this team develops, for me at least, just because if you have two very good number nines or two very good strikers, you want to find a way to get them on the pitch. And I think having that sort of shape would allow you to have two strikers but still have the kind of midfield depth. So I think whoever develops as your number nine is a player that could then, or as a couple number nines, is that player that could sort of change the shape a little bit. Yeah, the 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 one shape change that I could see the U.S., going to in the near future with the personnel that we know of. I might take your point about, you know, there being some some unknown youngster or even a known youngster that that suddenly becomes good enough that you can't ignore them anymore. Uh, I, I think those players have a much higher bar to clear for the U.S. than they pretty much have ever had before. When you think about the quality of the midfield three, you think about having Champions League players out wide and the number nine spot is is still weak now for the U.S. in their current pool, but it's not all that strong at the youth levels either. So, I, I don't I don't know that I envision any of those players all the way jumping over, but with the current group of players, the one thing that I would be curious to try is that four two three one, right? Is having whether it's Adams and McKenney or Adams and Musa together, I think it it kinda has to be one or the other of Musa and McKenney. And then maybe Giorena as a number ten, or maybe maybe there's someone else as a ten. I don't really see anybody else doing a great job of that in the US pool. And and really like let, let's be honest, the number ten role in that system is not really all that different from what the the wingers did under Greg Berhalter, where they tuck into the half spaces and they have some freedom to roam. It's a it's a very similar role. It's not the exact same role, but it is it is relatively similar. Reina, I think, is the one player that could do a good job of adapting to that role. And then you have the freedom to have two wingers on the field instead of one. So it it is a more attacking look. If the U.S. is confident in the winger depth that they have, I mean, a couple of the players I have down on my list as potential break-ins are wingers. It's Alejandro Zendejas, who I think is incredibly talented. It's uh, it's Malik Tillman, who I'm, I'm not all the way there on, but is having a, a good year in Scotland right now, making people angry left and right. You love to see that kind of thing. And then Taylor Booth is playing as a winger for Utrecht and has had a, a phenomenal year. I wrote about that recently. He's He's been really, really good. So maybe there is enough quality out wide that it really does warrant basically getting three attackers on the field underneath a number nine, right? So you have Reyna tucking inside all the way as a number 10. You've got maybe Pulisic on one wing. Maybe it, it doesn't really matter who the others are for the sake of this conversation, but maybe one of those players breaking into the core or maybe Weah or Aronson improving or maybe Gio Reyna really shining in a more central role for Dortmund or the double pivot that you mentioned, Taylor. I mean, any of those factors could really prompt the U.S. to go more in that 4-2-3-1 direction. We'll just have to wait and see if it happens. All right. Uh, Two more questions still to be answered, but we're going to take one more break and then we will be back to round things out in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. Uh, Graham, I'm coming to you for this one, even though Julia Furey uh, Immediately goes to Joe. Uh, I know Joe has said he doesn't think the U.S. women's national team will win the World Cup. Julia agrees. Who do you think will take them out given the bracket? So the USA in Group E with the Netherlands, Vietnam, and then the winner of the playoff between Portugal and then Cameroon or Thailand. So Cameroon, Thailand play each other. The winner of that plays Portugal. The winner of that will be in the U.S.'s group. Graham, I'm assuming your answer is Vietnam. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Vietnam to win the whole thing, yep, yep, yep. I, I, I presume. Got to. Um, so I went through the bracket, which was trickier than I envisaged because I normally Agreed. rely on someone like ESPN to produce a bracket where I can just do, this team will win, this team will win, this team will lose, this team will draw. And obviously we're about four months out from the World Cup actually starting, and so none of those uh, none of those web pages exist at the moment, and I definitely didn't go midway through one of those brackets and then realize it was the 2019 world cup and a lot of the teams in there i'm like wait scotland's in here what? this is not yeah we're not unfortunately we're not at the the 2023 women's world cup but anyway going through my bracket very quickly i think the u.s will win their group ahead of the netherlands who i, I wasn't so impressed with at, at the euros i know mark parsons is gone but still i think the u.s topped that group that probably means if I did this bracket correctly, this is where I, I find out I, did, I didn't do this correctly. But anyway, this is my impression of how the bracket is. Um, that probably means a meeting with Italy or Argentina in the last 16. I don't think it matters because the US will come through either of those those teams. Quarterfinal could be Norway if you project it out, potentially Japan. That is a step up in quality, but the US, in my opinion, comes through that match as well. The semi-final is probably Sweden or Spain, and if Spain can get their act together before the the summer, they could be a, they could be a real threat. Um, but at the moment, the controversy with uh, Jorge Vilda and the 15 first team players re- still refusing call ups at the moment. That story is still rumbling on. So if it's the current Spain team, then I think it's probably Sweden in 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 that game and. 
I think, given what we saw off, off the, for, at the Euros from Sweden, I think the US beat Sweden in the semi-finals as well. Then you're looking at the other half of the draw to get your other finalists, and I think you're probably looking at England or Germany making the final, and that is where I think the US could come unstuck unstuck excuse me because i think both those teams have high quality players playing at the top level they've both got experience at international level of international tournaments of doing well at international tournaments as well obviously we know germany's pedigree and uh, uh, the women's game and england recently won the euros they have a good both teams have a good mix of experience and youth and and players in their peak within their group and they both have excellent managers with a real grasp of how to get the best out of their players and and uh, and an identity, a tactical identity, which I don't think the US has at, the, at this point. So I think it's not going to be a disastrous tournament for the US, but I think they lose in the final to Germany or England. Interesting. Uh, I did have my bracket wrong, so Graham, uh, you can feel good there. Uh, Joe, I'm hoping you did not have your bracket wrong. Uh, how say you on this one? I had what Graham had. So, Graham, you pretty much walked through the potential U.S. path in the same way that I had written it down. Really, the the competition doesn't start to get real for the U.S. And in, in knockout soccer, anything can happen, right? So there is that caveat. But it doesn't start to get really difficult until the semifinals. Like, it, it, most likely, if the teams that we expect to take care of business do, in fact, take care of business in the group stage. So if we project it out that way, as you did, then, yeah, it, it kind of starts to get real in the semifinals and then in, in the final especially – Canada, France, England, and Germany are all on the other side of the bracket from the U.S. if they win their groups. And that is that is an if, but it's also a, a most likely here. So it is a very, very friendly bracket for the U.S. The true threats don't come till later. Uh, honestly, I'll say this is the thing that has made me feel the most optimistic about the U.S. this summer uh, so far. Like, like so far this year at all, or, or maybe even since... Flacco took over? Like, I mean, it, it's been a while since I felt this optimistic about the U.S., I still think, you know, whoever they meet in the final and whatever adversity they face on the way is is going to be a challenge for this team. And I still think that there are a lot of issues there, but it is an incredibly friendly bracket. Um, and, and I think that should give U.S. fans a lot of hope. Uh, I, I really like this setup for the U.S. It's much, much easier than it was for them last time around where they have to face England before they even get to the final. Then they, then they end up taking down a stronger Dutch team than than this this Dutch team is now in their own group. So, yeah, it's it's an it's a nice bracket. I still have my doubts about this team, but if you're just talking literally about the X's and O's of getting to the final, it's a lot simpler for Vlaco and, and company than almost any other bracket alignment would be. I think even agreed because I think even if they did finish second in their group and they went through to play the winner of a different group, they still avoid most of those teams. I think the way it works, they can only play teams from groups A, C, or G, or E, which is their own, and then the other side of the bracket would be most likely England in there, France in there, Germany in there. So really, you can't meet any of those until the final, I believe I'm correct in saying. So yeah, yeah it comes down to like maybe Spain could spring, spring a surprise, maybe Sweden could spring a surprise, but it does feel like it, it will be... An upstart or an up upset, a team that we didn't see coming. But if it's going to be one of the kind of perennial title contenders, it's going to be the final. The only other one that maybe worth throwing in there, uh, they could meet Japan in the knockout rounds, and Japan could be a problem. But I think it probably will be somebody in the final, and maybe if they kind of cruise to that final and then they're playing a team that had to kind of battle their way there, that could be a problem for the U.S. But So it sounds like, are we all expecting... At least a semifinal appearance then for, for the U.S. women? Yes, 
hundred percent. I think so. Yeah, hundred percent. Any anything yeah. less than that, I mean, barring some catastrophic thing that we don't expect, and that's really not the U.S.'s fault, which does happen in soccer. Like anything less than that is is a failure for sure. Yeah, I think the only one would be they if they did lose to the Dutch and they finished runners up, then they'd play the winner of Group G, which I think we're saying is most likely Sweden. So maybe if Sweden put together a big run and are stronger than they've been, that could be a problem. But short short of that, uh, yeah, I'd say semifinals or bust. Hopefully finals or bust. Hopefully a third one in a row and then the greatest team ever. Uh, all right. So we'll see what happens with the U.S. women. Obviously, we're going to talk much, much more about that the Women's World Cup as we get a little bit closer to it. But for now, final question from Riley Bieber, uh, Justin Bieber's uncle, I believe. Uh, who are some current MLS coaches you could see making the jump to Europe in the next few years? Is there anyone outside of the Red Bull City Football Group pipeline that could break in? Uh, Joe, I will come to you first for this one. But first, I will apologize to Riley because I'm, I'm assuming the Bieber joke is one he's heard. At least a couple times in his life. So with that apology now extended, Joe, tell me about the coaches that could make that jump. Yeah, so first of all, there are some. Like, like I think that is pretty exciting. Joe, didn't, and, you, didn't you just do a video for Backheel that begins with, where are all the good American coaches? We still haven't seen them actually be proven, and a lot of the names I have on my list are not American. So that, that kind of answers <laughs> oh, okay, the question. There we go. But, okay, okay. Like, I mean, there, are, there actually are, for now, some potential options in yeah. MLS. And, and we, we had an article go up for Backheel as well about, you know, MLS fans and people that have wanted these coaches to go to Europe have been burned before, right? They were burned with Jason Christ. They were burned with Caleb Porter. They've been burned, and they will likely be burned again. All the names I'm about to go through, we're, we're probably not going to see all of them, and, and maybe we won't see any of them go to Europe. But I think there are some that could actually go. Whether or not they have success there is is a completely different question, Taylor, to, to even dial down a little bit further on this. Like, Jesse Marsh had success in MLS hasn't had success outside of Austria in Europe, which is, you know, not not good. So, yeah, we still don't know where the good American coaches are. Uh, at least there aren't there don't seem to be very many that have proven themselves. But I, I love the way that Riley, that you framed this question, because really the coaches that have gone recently are the Red Bull coaches and are the City Football Group coaches. So I think about Jesse Marsh, I think about Patrick Vieira and Ronnie Dyla. Those are the three that have really gone recently. Vieira goes over to France, Ronnie Dyla goes to Belgium, and, and Jesse Marsh goes to do his Red Bull thing with Leipzig and then Salzburg and then Leipzig and then Leeds and now Southampton. So those have those coaches haven't all moved within their pipelines, but they have moved, and we're still kind of waiting on the proof of concept for managers outside of those those pipelines. So some that I think could possibly go or and are maybe even somewhat more likely than others to go, I don't know. Steve Terundolo, uh mayor of Hanover, spent a bunch of time in... in Europe obviously playing for Hanover and then up through their coaching system with Germany some as well. He's got the pedigree and he's coaching like one of the most talented teams in MLS, which makes you look really good. And I think he had a really good season last year, did a lot of stuff very, very well. He's one name. And then Wilfred Nancé is the other one that came to mind for me. Not not American. So he's born in France, played in France, coached in Montreal, now in Columbus. Montreal have ties to Europe with Bologna. So I, I'm sure Nancé made some connections there. Uh, in Syria, and then he probably has connections himself in France and in other spots around Europe. And I think his his work really speaks for himself in MLS because speaks for itself, excuse me, because he's been one of the best coaches in the league. Even two years ago when Montreal didn't make the playoffs, that team was was real, real good. So those are the, the two that I think are in the top tier: one American, one one not American. Uh, and then there's a, a handful of others that could, but I feel like I've been talking for forever. So Graham, I want to know: Do you have any other nominees for this group? 
So Nancy was on my list, uh, and uh, Sharundalo was also on my list. Um, I don't know if Jim Curtin is set on being USMNT assistant manager, but if he's if he's not getting that job, it seems almost certain there will be at least some European clubs keeping an eye on him. I know he's uh, his style is quite Red Bully, but technically he's you know he's obviously not part of the the Red Bull uh, pipeline. He's not under that umbrella, and that style of play is obviously quite popular right now. So. You know, I, I don't know whether there are many clubs in Europe that are actually pulling that off very, very well, very effectively at the moment. But he's had sustained success at Philly. He wears a Prada jacket well. So he, he'd, I think he would potentially do quite well in Europe. I, I would be, I'd be disappointed if Jim Curtin didn't go to Europe at some point in his career it feels like he's in that kind of upper, upper echelon of, of MLS coaches right now you know with some others like like Josh Wolf, he was potentially on my on, on my list as well he played in Germany he's built a good team in Austin but I, I'm still I'm still not totally sure how good he how good he actually is I feel like I need a larger body of work from him and Jim Curtin has that larger body of work so yeah as I say I would be disappointed if he didn't go and test himself in, in, in Europe at, at some point but maybe he's going to be the next the I say about the assistant job that was on the presumption that maybe Jesse Marsh is getting that job. Uh, maybe he's going to be the new head coach. I, I I genuinely don't have a feel for what US Soccer is going to do with that job. So maybe it is going to be Jim Curtin and he's not going to go to Europe. Um, but yeah, those those were the the names that I that I had on my list as well. Uh, Joe, where was Ben Olsen on your list? Uh, believe it or not, he didn't quite make the cut. Uh, quite. I think he, okay. I think he was just underneath. Yeah. All right, a little more time and we'll see what happens. Phil Neville. Uh, the, Eric Winalda? Eric Winalda? The crazy thing, yeah, yeah Winalda's a, a good a good first pick. Ben Olsen's like, what, 40? He's he's young. He's still really young for a coach. Ben Olsen cannot be 40. Not in DC years. He cannot he is, be 40. He's 45. He's 45 years old, which is crazy to me that he's still only 45 yeah. after coaching DC United for 45 years. I don't really understand how that <laughs> how that actually came together. A couple, a couple of other serious names on my list. Uh Nico Estevez, who uh, was a, a, an assistant coach with the U.S. Men's National Team, then went to Dallas. I'm I'm not sure. Like all these are too early, right? That's the problem. All these are too early. Uh, Graham, I, I think you you hated that with Josh Wolf already. We need to see more. I think Estevez is probably a, a little bit of a better coach than Josh Wolf, but I think he also has a, a maybe a little bit of a stronger squad. We'll find out if any of that's true, or maybe I'm just blowing smoke this season. Uh, and then Nick Cushing is the other one. He is in the City Football Group pipeline. So that kind of is against the premise of, of Ronnie's question, but or Riley's question. Excuse me, Riley. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, he's coached the the Man City women's team in England before becoming an assistant coach at NYCFC. Now is their head coach, and I, I thought had some mixed success last year, but a good season or two, given his connections in England, I think could see him hop back across the Atlantic. What well, what do we think of just when I'm I'm, I'm I'm talking about the body of work there with Jim Curtin and, and Joe, you say there it's, it's quite early for a lot of these coaches. Yeah. But just looking through the list there of MLS coaches, it's kind of difficult to place Gio Savarese in, in, in all this because obviously he's had quite a bit of success in, in MLS. He's, he's, he's won a, uh, an MLS Cup, right? Timbers under him won, a, won an MLS Cup at some Honestly, point? don't remember. No. So he won MLS. So I think they've made, they've made like finals before, haven't they? Anyway, yeah, they I can't quite lost remember, to Atlanta but, in the final, I believe. Yeah, so um, he's had a degree of success, but he's been in MLS for you know for a long time now. We're talking like six seasons. I know Timbers fans maybe there was a bit of debate about whether he should have stayed on at the end of last season, but he has you know he's played in Europe, played in Italy, uh, played in in Wales, played in England. 
So I don't know. I, when I look through the kind of the playing careers of some of these sure. coaches, I often think if they played in Europe, they're maybe more likely to go over there as as, as a coach. Yeah. I don't know. Sabarese, I'm interested to see what happens after the Timbers. Yeah, he won. He won the MLS's back tournament. Which, if that isn't you know enough uh, of a uh, enough of a, a launch pad, of. I mean that's I don't know what is. I uh, <laughs> I hear you on that one, Graham. I don't think Sabarese is is like the best coach, and I don't know how high his ceiling is. He's never seemed to me really interested in in coming up with a lot of new stuff with Portland, you kind of know what you're going to get and what you're going to get probably like a fourth or fifth place Western conference team that then maybe sets up to make a run. And I, I don't know how many of his skills really translate beyond that kind of environment. So I, I could be totally wrong on that. And he has had success and, and is clearly good at, at managing a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. Maybe just not in the stuff that I see on the field every weekend, um, but he's got to be doing something right to keep that job for that long. So, uh, yeah, maybe Savarese, maybe there's others here that, that I, I didn't put on my list that could make that jump. Well, if and when Gio Savarese gets the Man City job, we will certainly be back to discuss it. Uh, but for now, gentlemen, thank you for taking the time to answer all of these many questions. Uh, Graham Ruthven, well done today, my friend. Thank you, Taylor Rotwell. Uh, and Joe Lowry, I'm sorry you lost that on the Southampton gig. I know you, ha- you threw your hat in there. Uh, b- better luck next time. Maybe you can assist Gio Savarese at Man City. Yes, I'll be the assistant to Gio Savarese, who's the assistant to Jim Curtin, who's the assistant to Jesse Marsh, who's the assistant to Pep. I think that's how this is going to go. Who's the assistant to Chris Armas? Yes, you left that Natural. one out. <laughs> there it is. Listeners, there it is. thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will be back with more listener questions tomorrow, Champions League review Thursday, and a big thing Friday to round out the week. For now, we'll talk to you soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.